everybody, welcome to another episode in our Mainline Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Alec Bertina. Alec is a journalist and conflict analyst with Militant Wire, and today I'm going to be talking to him about the Russian Imperial Movement. He recently came out with an article for CTC at West Point on the Russian Imperial Movement, and basically what they are is they are a a far-right, I guess you could say, movement inside Russia that wants to bring back the Russian Empire similar to what was in place before the Soviet Revolution in 1917 in the midst of World War One. So it's a pretty interesting conversation. I hope you guys really enjoy it. Before we get started here, check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art and culture. Take a look at the journal's Bolton from the Borderlands, a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more also please consider supporting us on patreon patreon.com slash analyze educate ko-fi ko-fi.com slash analyze educate or substack analyze educate.substack.com and with that being said we'll head into the episode Hey, everybody. I'm here with Alec Bertina. Alec, you want to introduce yourself and tell us what you do? As uh, already mentioned, I'm Alec. Um, I'm someone who's got a bit of a background in doing uh, research on Russian irregular formations, so PMCs, militias, stuff like that. Uh, I've also got a Russian defense and Russian, um, I guess, Russian geostrategic focus as well. Uh, currently, I'm working as a freelance open source intelligence conductor on uh, Russian topics. And um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Awesome. So today we are going to be talking about the Russian imperial movement. This is something I personally didn't really know much about them at all before the invasion happened. And now they're kind of stepping into stepping into the light, I guess you could say, at least for people that that don't regularly pay attention to uh, the Russian ultranationalist movement i guess you could say what is the ideology of the russian imperial movement what drives them so if you look at the literature that came out when they were designated as a terrorist organization um by the us a lot of the answers you would get were that they were you know nazis or something like that in reality it is far right but it's an archaic weird blend of like russian orthodox ideology very archaic um conservatism reactionary sentiment sort of mixed into one um so say you look at nazi movements there's a lot of focus on race for example or focus on the inferiority of certain groups or a focus on um maybe the occult for example uh, you don't quite get that with the russian imperial movement there is elements of chauvinism racism but it's not the central basis of the ideology um and yeah, obviously, that imperial aspect is unique as well. Um, devout imperialism is not necessarily something you find in Nazism. Expansionism, sure. Uh, military aggression, sure. But um, actually wanting an empire back, that's a bit more of a novel sort of thing. So do they do they want the Russian Empire back to, let's say, its borders in like 1914? talking about the Baltics, I mean, a good portion of Poland, uh, basically all of Central Asia, right? Is that what they're looking at? 
pretty much yeah at minimum they'd want the borders of like the russian empire when it was at its like most solid which is you know spanning into central asia spanning into the baltics elements of you know um for some people it's even the balkans um but it's also an idea right and that idea could be pretty flexible um so it might be wanting sort of values that are contingent around like how the russian empire expanded initially that might be more important to some members than the actual right which territories are exactly um expanded to right yeah like, do they whether they have to be at the baltics or they have to be at, you know some of them believe in an empire spanning from lisbon to vladivostok for example um, <laughs> interesting yeah that's if you have anyone that's like a sympathetic to eurasianism for example that's something that they would say they believe in but i don't know how many eurasianists there are in the russian imperial movement it might not be that many okay on on that note just a just a quick question is alexander dugan involved in this at all does he have any ties to them i uh, i not that i'm aware of no okay um, i'm just curious because of eurasianism and all that yeah that's why i was a bit hesitant to bring up that example but um my point is that basically there is a lot of division even within the far-right community amongst like what constitutes Russian living space or Russian, uh, former Russian imperial strongholds, right? So so the Russian imperial movement, it sounds like they don't exactly have a, a set set guidelines as to like if the Russian empire were to come back today, these are the exact borders that we want. Um, there would be certain things that would be like more conditional, for instance, like taking back the Baltics would be quite important. Definitely Ukraine would be quite important, but some areas may be less important. So, um, you know, expansion into Central Asia might be less important because uh, the group's actually shown some attitudes, some negative attitude towards Central Asians. Um, okay. So the idea that, you know, they would want close integration with them that's sort of unclear to me. Um, but definitely, yeah, the Baltics and the areas I mentioned for sure. So what, speaking on Ukraine, what is this idea of Nova Russia? So uh, Nova Russia is sort of like, um, so there's Mala Russia, which is like lesser Russia, which is what the Russian imperial movement would often call Ukraine. Uh, and uh, Nova Russia is like, it translates to sort of a new Russia, but it, I guess it also means greater Russia. And that's, for example, territory that spans into like Russia and Ukraine and Russia and the Baltic sort of. Um, so it's like just greater Russia, right? More of a sort of imperial version of what Russia looked like geographically. Okay. Uh, let's move on to the Russian Imperial Legion. That's their militant wing, correct? In practice, yeah. Okay. In practice, like, in theory, um, it's just so happened to be an organization of volunteers that formed from the Russian imperial movement. There's no explicit mention of like, these guys are paramilitary or military branch, but in practice, that's how they act. They make clear that the links between the two exist. Like, so. Okay. How structured are they? So... A bit of reporting came out from Radio Free Europe um, that indicated that the GRU had some involvement, actually, in organizing. Um, 
how the Imperial Legion was structured alongside other volunteer formations as part of an umbrella of a big organization called Redu. Um, so that makes it hard to know the full details of it. Um, but in general, um, there is Denise Garayev, who is sort of the head of the paramilitary branch, if you want to call it that, um, who has some prior experience. He's, you know, was an instructor. Uh, I think he had active service at one point. Um, so pretty, you know, militarily experienced. Um, very ideologically committed as well. Less um, vocal about the ideology than like the intellectual head, which is Stanislav Varebiev. Um, and past that, I know there's some instructors at their training center, which they own in St. Petersburg. Uh, I don't know like if they have an officer structure, they probably do. Gadaev, uh, I think, acts as like the commander on the field and overall as well. Um, past that, I, you know, without seeing how the GIU's controlling them and configuring them, it's a bit difficult to tell. Uh, okay. And also, it's kind of hard to tell how much the GIU is directly involved in running the organization versus just sort of keeping an eye on them or providing them some equipment or something like that. Okay. So you brought up their training range in St. Petersburg. I under in the article that you and Lucas wrote for uh, for West Point, I think you guys said that it was under the control, allegedly at least, of the Ministry of Emergency Situations. Is there how how accurate do you think that is? So, I think what we might have mentioned is that for that center to operate. Uh, there would need to be some authorization from authorities, at least unofficially. Okay. Um, in terms of who it's under, it seems like the Russian Legion guys actually signed contracts under the MOD. Or at least money on some level is moved from the MOD or like controlled by the MOD. Um, so the Russian Ministry of Defense. But in terms of who controls the actual training center legally, um, I'm not sure if it is to ministry of image of um yeah the, the ministry that you mentioned basically but um yeah definitely the the russian authorities must have some ability to sort of um they're clearly authorizing or letting this center operate okay is there is there any indication as to what kind of training goes on i mean i'm sure they you know fire rifles and stuff like that but is there anything else so it really depends on what you're going there for. So you can actually go for individual courses. So that would be first aid courses, uh, fire drills, that sort of thing. Um, uh, even close combat training, that sort of stuff. Um, Get out who I mentioned is actually qualified in a lot of that stuff. So especially the hand-to-hand -hand combat. Um, you can also come there if you're like enlisting into the Imperial Legion. Um, so you'd be actually trained up there as part of your sort of um, recruit training, if you want to call it that, uh, before you deploy. Okay. And there's also, like, um, I think there's programs to sort of exchange knowledge with other far-right groups. So the Nordic Resistance Movement actually stopped off there for a while, some of its members did. And then they went on to um, conduct uh, some failed bomb attacks in uh, Sweden, I think it was. So, um, there's probably a mix of all of these things happening in that center. Um, so there's like, you know, paid for training programs that they can charge money for, which is like a way of raising finances. 
and is also training up their members or training up like ideological allies. Okay. Now, in the article you guys wrote, it it almost sounded like they also have, um, I guess you could say, ideological education or training as well, because you guys brought up a GRU, a retired GRU colonel, I want to say it was, that's lectured there at least a couple times. Yeah, so um, it's good you mentioned that, that there, there, are, there are guest speakers. Um, so I think the person you mentioned is GRU Colonel Vladimir Kvachkov, who is yeah. like almost Spetsnaz Colonel. Uh, he's interesting because he's like diehard committed to the ideology. Um, you know, people often have this image of like these Russians running these groups with like a lot of cynicism and not believing anything. He does seem like an unwelcome, uh, almost unwanted ideologue within Russia. You know, the state doesn't necessarily have good relations with, which is why they arrested him. Um, with also military experience and also the right ideological beliefs to sort of lecture to impressionable young men that sort of join. Um, and well, if you watch Kvachkov's sort of videos where he's interviewed, including with um, the head of the Russian Imperial Movement's ideological branch, um, he basically is willing to talk about any topic, whether that's how Russia needs to fight militarily to corruption within the country and how, how that's degrading the country. Um, the loss of conservative values in Russia, the invasion of the Central Asian horde in Russia. That's another set of narratives as well that are there. Um, yeah. Um, so to answer your question, yeah, there are lectures as well. Um, they're probably on a range of topics, some military, some not. Uh, and some guests are more high profile than others, you know, not everyone there has got such a cool profile like Kvachkov with like, you know, the military background. I'm sure some are just sort of ideologically similar. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So what is uh what is Klachkov's relationship to Igor Gerkin? So um it seems it's an ideological one. So Vladabiev, um Stanislav Vladabiev, um Klachkov and Stilkov all know each other. Uh, there's actually videos of them together. Uh, at the Russian Imperial Movement sort of like public publishing house slash, you know, HQ. Um, and it seems like they were both sort of involved in actively or, you know, from a distance supporting the Novodysia movement or like the, how the Russians like to call it the Russian Spring, okay. which is like this idea of like the separatist movement in the East that magically arose out of nowhere uh, to fight the oppressive Ukrainian regime. Um, and basically, they have overlapping interests. They have military backgrounds. Well, Vodobiev doesn't, but uh, Stilkov and Kvachkov, they both have military backgrounds too. Uh, they're both disaffected with the system. And um, Stilkov was actually fighting with the Imperial Legion, or he was commanding them even back in the day when the, you know, the initial violence erupted in 2014 in Eastern Ukraine. Um, Stilkov was quite instrumental in leading some of the Russian Imperial Legion guys in like the Battle of the Beltsova, um, which is one of the towns that Ukraine lost quite early on uh, after intense fighting. So yeah, that's, I guess, through those mutual interests and those mutual circles, it kind of became inevitable that they would get close. And when, you know, Stilkov was singing happily his propaganda stuff uh, and he wasn't arrested, him and Kvachkov actually shared a few streams. 
but uh, that got rolled up quite quickly. Kwajkov was arrested first, and Osiolkov was shortly after arrested as well. So, okay, I didn't actually I didn't know about uh, Kwajkov being arrested. Yeah, he was uh, basically when the, this was just after the mutiny. Obviously, the Russian state realized, okay, the ultra nationalist problem's gone a bit out of hand. Um, so we need to address it. So Kvachkov, who is a bit lower profile, was captured quite early and imprisoned. And then, uh, yeah, Stilkov was shortly after arrest, yeah. I think only maybe a few weeks after. And now he's running for president. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> running in prison. So for for those that don't know, uh, Strokov is the name that Igor Girkin used for himself. I want to say uh, during... The Russian Spring during the war in Donbass, where he, if I remember correctly, was actually the Minister of Defense for the DPR, which is how yeah, he yeah, short stint. yeah, yeah, that's like how he came to lead the fight in Eastern Ukraine. I guess you could say for the separatist Donbass. So, I'm assuming that's where these links to the GRU come from is from from these two guys or would i be mistaken with something like that it's very hard to understand exactly where it's starting um my understanding is the ultra nationalist elements that deployed in eastern ukraine were part of a you know broader hybrid toolkit that the russians were using uh so some of that would be building you know hooks into the ukrainian system after the ussr you know officially let go of Ukraine, um, you know, that would be on a political level. It would also be targeting the Donbass with Russian propaganda um, and then also employing these ultra-nationalist groups as well. Um, so, yeah, I think the GRU sort of employed these guys, instrumentalized them, you know, people who actually believed in this sort of cause uh, and maybe, you know, helped them out maybe embedded some people that were maybe less ideologically inclined, but, you know, had experience, were deniable. And uh, I think this is, yeah, when Stilkov came along, because he was an FSB officer yeah. at one point. Um, so it would make sense that you actually had all these ideologues led by someone who knows a little bit more about, you know, fighting and how to run an insurgency campaign. So that's that would sort of be my guess of how the GRU got involved in that and you know, coordinated with them because the Russian imperial movement doesn't actually have a lot of love for the Russian state in its current form. But I'm sure there was sort of a pragmatic deal made where everyone's goals were met mutually. So, you know, one element could tolerate the existence of the other element. Um, and that's sort of how I view the relationship with between the Russian imperial movement and the Russian state right now. Yeah, so what what's their... Um relationship i guess with the with the russian state in general because it just reading the article i mean it definitely uh sounds interesting and confusing it's a it sounds like they're not big fans of each other but you know as long as they're working towards the same goals i guess and as long as the imperial movement doesn't i guess i could say fuck around in russia i mean they're kind of left to their own devices yeah, I would say that's sort of right. I think other researchers described it as like an unwritten contract where it's agreed that the Russian improvement maybe gets more scope than it should as a radical organization. And in exchange, um, 
they don't mess about at home creating trouble. They only create it abroad. Um, and preferably, you know, in a way that's mutually aligning for both parties. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think that the anti-state sentiment is legitimate. Uh, you know, given that a lot of these guys are genuine ideologues, it's going to be very hard to convince me that like they are enjoying working with a regime as pragmatic as, you know, Putin's. Um, but I think there are some things that, you know, raise some eyebrows, for example, there's mentioned to them deploying in Syria and a Central African Republic. Uh, if they did do that, and with Syria, it does look like that was the case at some point, and Libya as well. Um, it's very likely that, you know, the Russian state would have to approve that uh, because you don't just arrive in those countries to war zones magically fighting alongside other Russian elements that just, um, that has to be authorized on some level. And I think the military intelligence of Russia seems like the best candidate for that. Um, you know, there's, it's hard to get anything on paper showing that, right? All we have is like some proof that basically says that uh, the Russian Imperial Legion is coordinating alongside other volunteer formations, and that's a process controlled by the GRU. That's what we do have on paper, but everything else is a bit more um, open to question. What is um, what is their relationship, if they have any, to other groups such as uh, Rusich and Wagner? So... Wagner, from understanding, we don't have a lot to go on there, but there is a respect for some of the fighters uh, from some members. Some of them see Wagner personnel as necessary evil, and some people viewed the main problem being the fact that the, you know they were relying on people that were fighting for money, um, and also the fact that someone as immoral as Prigozhin was leading the organization. That was actually a common complaint by those people. Uh, if, especially if you look at their social media chatter, they were always complaining that, you know, Prigozhin was um, a sadist, a proper convict rather than a, you know, a decent human being. And he treated his men horribly and he treated the convicts that were deployed under him horribly. They showed sincere disgust, I think. Yeah. That. And he is a member uh, of the oligarch class, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Prigozhin was one of the people that robbed Russia of its sort of uh, ability to be a truly functioning empire, right? Um, mm. And with Rusic, I think there is ideological disparity. So they're both far right. Um, but Rusic has a more, I want to say, almost a white supremacist tinge to it. Um, and less of a, I don't think that Rusin necessarily cares about bringing back an empire and having strict Russian Orthodox traditions being imposed. I think that's sort of, they don't really care about that. It's more just like ensuring rushes for white people only and things like that. Yeah, from um, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but from my understanding, Rusic is, I mean, they are actually like a neo-Nazi formation, right? And that's that's kind of their focus. Whereas, you know, for the Imperial movement, you have Nazis in there, but that's not like their set ideology. Yeah, pretty much. I, I think the attraction to a neo-Nazi group versus to Russian to like a reactionary Russian Orthodox group is aren't the same. I actually think there's a difference of why you would join one relative to the other. 
Uh, so I imagine there's not actually a lot of ideological overlap there. There's maybe some common agreement on certain things. Um, but yeah, Rusic would fit a more conventional definition of a neo-Nazi element, though I would say that maybe not everyone joining them is a Nazi, right? They might have views that are on the right, you know, on the hard right of things, but they might be joining for the because of the image that Rusic has, which is one of the original, you know, groups that we're fighting in t since 2014, and ones with like a cool aesthetic, as some might see it, right? Um, so I'm very careful to not view all members as like as ideological as each other, yeah. Because chances are that's just not true. Um, people might be more swayed to joining these groups for one reason than another. Than another. So, okay, makes sense. What's their uh, relations with international groups? I know you talked about the Nordic resistance movement. Um, I also saw in your guys' article there some sort of relationship or ties with the White Power Ranger squad, which I don't know if you grew up watching Power Rangers. It kind of sounds a little silly, but whatever. And then there's a Espanola unit as well, which I believe is currently fighting in Ukraine. Yeah, I think so. Well, the WPRS, you know, the Power Rangers, there's a bit of a question as to like what their presence is in Ukraine, how authentic they are if like a social media chatter is to be believed they're sort of like an eco fascist group that's also very you know on on the far right in terms of social views and stuff like that um with espanola i think they're also one of the volunteer formations i mentioned under the gru's redo umbrella um led by a guy called pitbull who's very much a you know, old school neo-Nazi type football hooligan. Um, he actually has some relationship with the head of Rusic as well, one of the heads of Rusic. Uh, there's pictures of them together. Um, and there's also a lot of ties of like American uh, white supremacist organizations. Yeah, so, yeah, I saw that like the uh, the Adam Boffin division, right? I think they yeah, trained also the a couple Americans. Or... There's also Ronaldo Nazaro is the base as well, which is another American accelerationist movement um, or group rather. Um, it's interesting. It feels like the far right world is very split on which side to support. Um, so you have disagreements around which state is more quote unquote degenerate. Is it Ukraine or Russia or which state is more white? Um and these will be sort of dividing lines for separate, you know, white supremacist groups, often in the same country. Um, so, yeah, um, it feels like, you know, some of the, you know, old school uh, 2014 sort of Ukrainian fire groups were kind of competing for influence with international groups, as were sort of the Russian elements that, you know, popped up like Rusic and everything. Um, but yeah, the, the scope of RM's activities seem to be pretty international in terms of like the partnerships they're building. So, okay, and then they they also invite people from, uh, I mean, really around the world to come and train right at their range in Saint Petersburg. And that sort of fact is what might raise a bit of an alarm bells, right? It it seems a bit convenient strategically for Russia to just allow a nest of like white supremacists to train up other white supremacists or, you know, extremists. Yeah. And then just let them transfer that knowledge back home to where, you know, they'd obviously do something bad with that knowledge. Um, there's an argument to say that like the reason why that activity is tolerated is because the, 
the Russian state actively wants that to happen, right? Um, if you can train up destabilizing actors in Russia without having direct involvement and then also release them back into the wild back home in rival states, that happens to be a pretty strategically... Uh, the impact of that seems to be strategically beneficial to Russia. Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking that that... At, at least why that activity might be sanctioned, supported, or at least tolerated is precisely for that, uh, for that reason. Oh, is, you might not have an answer to this, but is there any indication that um, GRU elements or maybe other elements from other Russian security services kind of have a hand in training these far-right militants from other countries? It's very difficult because of like the Wagner group, you, you could say, you could definitively say there's enough evidence to point that that's like a possible thing. Uh, so for instance, you know, Wagner had a training facility in Krasnodar Krai that just happened to be next to, you know, a, a Spetsnaz training center. Um, that was in Malkin, so, you know, right? Yeah, Malkin, yeah, that's right, in Krasnodar Krai region. Um, whereas with the Russian imperial movement, it's hard to know, like, where that knowledge started uh because you have you know the, the head of the, the legion denise garayev saying it's you know it's because of me i have this experience and i transferred it to everyone um but there's no recorded instances of like you know them visiting a training site uh, belonging to the mod or something like that uh, okay. there are questions as to why they could co-deploy with mod elements in countries abroad um but that doesn't necessarily constitute like training, right? Yeah. It might constitute like field experience working with units that were experienced, maybe, but that's about it. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. So kind of staying in the same lane as far as this international right wing, I don't even know what word to use, not movement. Just all these like far right groups kind of getting together and being on the same page in terms of some ideology. You have the world national conservative movement that I believe the imperial movement was like somehow involved in with a Russian political party. What's the deal with that? So genuinely, it's, it's not uncommon for like-minded people to try and desperately meet and like proliferate our ideology. And um, the Russian imperial movement had a lot of that. Um, before it had any like sort of paramilitary elements at all. Um, a lot of its members were originally part of the sort of monarchist um, anti-Soviet protests of when, you know, when the Soviet Union was still around. They were sort of active in like, you know, underground meetings uh, discussing like conservative ideals and how 
Russia should transition away from Soviet Union back, back to empire, that sort of thing. So um, both domestically and internationally, they've, you know, attended various events where they've gotten together with like-minded, uh, uh, ideologically inclined people. <laughs> um, and yeah, spread their ideas, discussed how they might, you know, forward them. Okay. Let's get into some of their um, activities abroad. You mentioned Syria and Libya. Is there is there any indication as to what roles they were filling in in these countries? It's all just a lot of it. The, the issue is that open source files is not really that much to go into like detail with. Uh, th th they say that they were there. Uh, some like uh, other Russian sources have said that they were there. Um, I think even one of the profiles described that there was a mix of sort of like site security stuff being done. Um, but the details are incredibly vague. So it's, yeah, it's a bit difficult to see, like, were they doing counterinsurgency operations in joint coordination with the Russian Air Force and the Russian, you know, ground forces or not? Like, there's unfortunately nothing like that. Is it, is it possible that, um, guys from the movement that went to places like Syria and Libya didn't necessarily go as part of the movement. They just, you know, signed up with like Bogner or Rusich or signed a contract with the MOD and went over. So there's nothing to indicate that has necessarily happened, but there are, there is proof that uh, a lot of these fighters that will join a PMC will, you know, will sometimes then go on to join a volunteer formation or vice versa. Like, that volunteer formation ecosystem is pretty, um, it's a pretty close circle, right? Uh, chances are, if you like fighting abroad for causes, you might do it for money, right? Uh, yeah. Especially when, you know, and, and this is a stereotype I always try and push back on, people say, well, can guys just fight for money? Um, I've never found that to be very compelling. If you look at Russian, you know, social media accounts of Wagner guys, or you look at their social media posts, or if you just sort of understand what they're actually doing, it doesn't look like they're just fighting for money. Um, there's a mix of patriotism with monetary incentive mixed in. And I always said this to other people, like, I don't think that that's unique for like Russian PMCs. I think you'd find even in Western PMCs, you have people who are, you know, are there for the money, but they don't feel any less patriotic for what they're doing, right? Um, they might just not agree with how like their respective Ministry of Defense's handle the military. Um, but it doesn't mean they magically become anti-state or they just get guided by money and will fight for literally anyone. I think it's I think it's a bit more complicated than that, basically. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in Western uh, PMCs, I mean, take like Blackwater, for example, right? Obviously the most notorious here in the U.S. I mean, you have a lot of veterans, right? Guys that um, <clears throat> like valued their service in the military, but... You know, you don't really get paid a whole lot. And if you could get out and get paid a lot more to do the same thing, then why not? And like the other thing is they were co-deploying with often DOD, right? Yeah. In case of like like water and stuff. And also like to operate in regions, you have to have like government sanctions, right? To be able to do it. Um, and Obviously, you know, you can't just be a PMC, you know, in your host country going around working with your competitors right or with like your state's competitors that's just not at least when it just doesn't make sense from like a business standpoint right if you yeah. want contracts with your host country you've got to keep ensuring that you work in certain you know guidelines right
Yeah, there's this uh, uh I think there's like this misconception about like uh mercenaries, I guess if you want to call them today, like oh they just work for the highest bidder and it's like okay, well I mean, there's more to it than that, right? Like Wagner Group isn't, they're not going to sign a contract with the DOD and start fighting against the Russians. If, if, even if the DOD pays them a hundred times more than what the MOD is, that's just not happening. And also just add another thing. I, I don't think if you look at comparatively how much they're getting paid, Wagner guys are not paid that much compared to like standard PMCs. In fact, they're paid a lot less. But for Even, doing even the guys that, uh, that aren't convicts that just, just signed a contract. Yeah. Yeah, it's not it. It's maybe a lot for Russia, but it's globally on a global stand. It's not a lot. Um, and I, I think they're also doing a lot more dangerous work after with less support. Um, you know, like they're not just doing site security stuff. They're doing like active combat operations, in, you know, involving counterinsurgency. You know, their own air assets and no MOD backup if they ever you know screw up. Um, yeah, I don't people, think you do that sort of work just, you know, just because you want money. Yeah, people people give them a lot of shit. I mean, obviously, because of, uh, you know, things like Bakhmut and all that, which took them like, what, nine, ten months to capture. But it's like this isn't. This isn't like a normal, you know, like conventional military formation. This is not like an infantry division trying to take a city like this is a private military company like leading probably the largest urban assault since like at least Mosul. And obviously the lines get blurred because they're still using a lot of state resources. And yeah. uh, one thing that I found interesting about Bakhmut was like they were downplaying how much support they were getting from like Russian close air support. And that has to do with um, uh, like Prigozhin's feud with yeah. uh, Gerasimov and all that, right? Exactly. Yeah. You're not going to give credit to the people, that person you're competing with, right? Um, yeah. To go back to your question, uh, I would say that there is a lot of overlapping interests and a lot of overlapping sort of relationships with private military guys in Russia and, you know, volunteer formation guys and paramilitary groups. Um, often, you know, a lot of them are there because they like fighting for their country and I don't like the MOD. So that sort of gels them together. And, you know, they'll move around based on interest or whether they need money more or whether they you know, want to fight with a certain group because they've got a better reputation, but they'll they'll stay quite close socially. Um, so seeing them move around is not uncommon, and I think um, you'll find a lot of instances of Wagner guys repping like far right patches because they've been in far right groups prior to joining Wagner. Yeah, and you also have other guys wearing Wagner patches because prior to uh, you know joining whatever far right paramilitary they're in, they were in Wagner, right? Um, so I think that sort of goes to show like how much of a overlapping pool of people it is in all of these sort of uh, irregular formations, whether they're PMCs or militias. Okay. So how how did the imperial movement come to be involved in the Russian Spring? So it seems like they caught on quite early to the opportunity that you know, the annexation of Crimea provided. Um. There was also, you know, already a conventional narrative there of like the Russian speakers under siege from the new coup regime, as it was framed, right? Um, and you know, a lot of a lot of the Russian Imperial Movement members genuinely believed that. Yeah. Um, so they sent sort of like intellectual parties at first, people that you know were 
on the ground strategizing with you know some of the pro-russian elements that did you know actually exist there um you know not maybe to the not maybe at the level that the russian state would want to frame it but there definitely were people that were ready to sort of mobilize and the uh, russian imperial movement came there got involved there they also went to Kiev when the Euromaidan protests were happening to engage in sort of counter-protest stuff. So you had obviously one group of people that were, um, you know, keen to get Yanukovych ousted and um, were quite hostile to a continuing sort of closer link with Russia, especially because Yanukovych repressed them after, you know, they voiced initial position. But you also had people, you know, who were sort of, you know, ultra-nationalist elements, some were on payroll, some were not, who were actually countering those protests. And the Russian imperial movement, uh, in their own words, were involved in sort of organizing those people and also organizing um, or assisting in the organization of uh, pro-Russian um, demonstrations and opposition movements in sort of the eastern Ukraine as well. Okay. And after, you know, once there was conventional conflict breaking out between Ukrainian forces and uh, a mix of Russian irregular formations, you know, Russian active service people, uh, PMC guys, and also, you know, actual authentic separatists. Uh, the Russian Imperial Legion sent like their first detachment of people. I, I think it was in 2015. So a year after sort of that conversation started. And then they got quite actively involved in uh, combat operations uh, in place of the Biltava and, you know, across other parts of Eastern Ukraine. Yeah. So in your, in your article, uh, you and Lucas say that the movement claims they sent quote 20 groups to the Donbass. Is there any indication as to the size of these groups? So there is nothing to indicate that it's like thousands of members. That's yeah. in terms of figures, that's sort of the best I can give you. It's, they are an ideological fringe. Uh, it would be very fun, and I know a lot of people love overstating, you know, the group they're studying, how large their size is, and how much of a big player they are. Um, I think, you know, Luke can speak for himself, but I didn't look at the, into them because I thought they were a big player. Uh, I thought, you know, they were just one interesting irregular phenomenon that was happening within Russia that Russia could employ, uh, but they're not very big. Um, they probably didn't decisively contribute to combat operations but their presence is still worth noting just because of their ideology and because of like the implications of what having radicals of military experience might do you know in terms of russian security and also global security right um so yeah to answer your question it's definitely not thousands of people it's you know hundreds at best um but you know hundreds of highly motivated people that were fighting with less equipment than like russians would be fighting in ukraine now yeah with so. what's what's the role they currently uh serve post-invasion in ukraine so it seems like they they have a place for some specialists so we're talking mainly artillery uh maybe operating drones maybe also using electronic you know warfare weapons though it seems like infantry often just does that interchangeably when they need to uh, I'm mainly talking about like jamming guns. I'm not talking about like more complex EW systems. I don't think they're necessarily getting access to that. Um, but it mainly seems to be the case that they're sort of doing like assault infantry stuff or just sort of ground infantry conventional roles. 
whether that's holding something for the Russian state and Russian MOD troops, or whether that's uh, assaulting a certain area. So okay. one member who's, who's got a, you know, a decent social media following had his leg blown off in, in uh, Uldar, Uglidar, um, which is in eastern Ukraine, which is one of the areas that the Russians uh, conducted their counteroffensive in. Uh, so, or offensive rather. Um, so this was after I think Ukraine's offensive in Kharkiv died down, and it looked like Ukraine was sort of you know losing initiative and going on a defensive. Russia pressed Volodar as one of the, uh, you know, one of the numerous areas in eastern Ukraine that they were trying to take, and um, that didn't go very well. Um, yeah, that was a that was spearheaded by what out of hundred fifty fifth. Marines, I want to say. Yeah, so it was a mix of Marines, VDV, um, a lot of really competent elements that were just chucked into like a really unforgiving environment. Yeah, I think they um, got chewed up pretty bad by mines, if I'm not mistaken. It was mines, ATGMs, uh, basically anything because they were attacking a sort of flat terrain, right? Uh, against entrenched positions and um, also not led by very competent commanders, whether that's, you know, field commanders on the ground or like an operational commander like Muradov, uh, who is heading it. Um, but yeah, uh, one of the members of the Russian Imperial Legion who had a following lost their leg there uh, whilst doing assault infantry operations um, and, you know, was barely evacuated. He described quite a lot of anxiety if you read his sort of posts. Um, and it seems like, yeah, I, it seems like the perfect use of ideologically um, driven people, you know, people that believe in something greater than themselves, uh, chucking them into, you know, active assaults with infantry, often, you know, with not as much support as, say, a Western soldier would expect. Yeah. Um, it would make sense that they used it that way. And also, you know, um, you don't want to give them too sophisticated equipment. You don't want to give them an Air Force. Um, so it would make sense they would just be doing, you know, company level sort of assault stuff alongside other Russian formations. Uh, and as you mentioned, the Marines were involved in that. And there was accounts actually, um, independent accounts by like Russian Imperial Movement guys saying that, you know, uh, they had nothing positive to say about the MOD because they saw how poorly Marines were equipped, you know, and this was supposed to be one of the more equipped elements of the Russian army. And some of them had even less equipment than, you know, Imperial Legion guys did. Wow. So... It's it's their claim, right? We can't know for sure, but there was a a lot of criticism about how like their guys were often better equipped than the MOD's guys were. Uh, I know. I, I think at, at this point, uh, a lot of those dudes were um, mobilized, right? They're mobiques, so there was there was a lot of, at least from what I could see, a lot of word going around about how they weren't getting the best equipment and training at the time so they would reconstitute these elite elements so like people see vdv now and they're like oh wow these are like the the paratroopers we saw back in the day it's like chances are they're not you've got some of the skeleton of like you know actual vdv guys you know with military experience that were left and then you've also had people meshed into them that you know are slightly better equipped mobics basically and it's very likely the marines at that point were one of the elements uh that maybe had that sort of hybridized model of like having fresh guys coming in and also, you know, uh, Marines of actual experience coming in as well. 
Yeah, I mean, those guys, both the Marines and the VDV took some pretty heavy casualties in the first, uh, you know, opening months of the invasion, obviously without mobilization to back them up. Because I, as I understand it, um, the Russian military is like a tiered readiness force. So if you're not, you know, in war officially, which technically speaking, Russia isn't, it's a special military operation, your unit isn't at full size, it's not fully mobilized. Yeah, I would say discursively, I, I don't see, I don't even see the Russian state trying to make a distinction between the SMO and the, a war anymore. Uh, and if you look at their behavior, it's definitely indicative of a war posture. Um, but there's a mix of sort of, you know, Russian state pragmatism where Putin doesn't want to scare the domestic base off too much and rattle people internally. So there's some trade-offs made between what might be militarily sound versus what is politically sound. Um, but to answer your question, I think, um, yeah, the Marines and the VDV, those elements were the few that had any expeditionary or just any general combat experience at all. Um, so the, you know, they, they would have deployed in Syria, uh, they would have deployed in Georgia. And I think the issue was, was they were initially deployed as part of the largely volunteer force that was sent into Ukraine in the initial wave. And when they took those losses and when they, you know, would take losses in other offensives, uh, they were then sort of constituted with Bobigs and stuff like that. And that's when you had sort of the abandonment of like this Russian idea of having professionals going in first and being enough nine times out of 10 um, towards sort of like mobilizing the broader population, sort of trying to mix in volunteers with guys that were sort of just picked off the street. Um, yeah, and it, it, I guess that doesn't necessarily answer your question about tiered readiness, but like it sort of speaks to what that process looks like, you know? Yeah, yeah, I get, I didn't so much have a, a question about tiered readiness, just kind of a a point to bring up, I guess. Sorry, I, I go off on these tangents, it happens all the time. Um, what, what engagements other than Volnadar do we know that the movement has taken a part in? Sorry, no wrong words, Bachman. Uh, they're now claiming that like um, FDFka is like another area that they're actively involved in. Okay. Uh, actually, the social media activity at least indicates that. Um, it seems like they seem to have been sprinkled across the front. I, I haven't necessarily seen anything to indicate that they were in the southeast ever, as uh, so a sort of like Zaporizhia sort of front, uh, nor in Hirson. Um, but in terms of like Bakhmut. Volidar, um, Marienka, Avdeevka, that's the sort of areas that they do seem to be deployed in alongside, you know, other volunteer elements and also MOD elements. Yeah, so, the places where uh, where the MOD would put, um, let's say, the expendable elements of their force. And also the elements that are actually willing to do assault infantry roles. Because it's very difficult, and I think sadly both sides are starting to figure this out is that people that you know didn't necessarily volunteer first you know the first news that they heard about you know a war if they weren't the ones volunteering going to the front chances are making them into motivated assault infantry personnel is like going to be pretty difficult yeah and uh so in that sense you know russia only really has the marines the bdv uh some spets and has elements and, you know, these volunteer formations to sort of do assault infantry roles. 
because you know mobics on their own just aren't going to do much or you you know maybe you can start doing like what they do with conflicts which is you know through coercion getting like first echelon guys sent in you know who are designed to sort of soak up the damage um but if you start doing that to mobics there's a risk you know of the sort of rep repercussions back home uh which people dismiss as being a problem and i would say you know that for a while it looked like you know there were minimal repercussions back home in russia for like what putin you know was sort of sanctioning but it seems that's actually starting to change uh mobilized you know the wives and mothers and daughters of mobilized people are starting to become an issue uh they're starting you know to act you know organize a little bit more in russia and it's a very recent trend but it's a very real one and it sort of screams um to me the importance of you know even treating mobics with a little bit more consideration um because you know volunteer guys and prisoners by all means like chuck him in right and no one will feel sorry for them anyway but with mobics like people think you know that they're so expendable to the point where they could just be chucked into every battle and that's only so true right at yeah, some point the russian state is acknowledging that like there is a risk of people back home getting very angry that their guys are dying in you know unsupported company level attacks with no artillery and no aviation you know assisting them and, and stuff like that yeah before before we started recording me and you were kind of talking about um you know the birth rate situation in russia and stuff like that and how it it's pretty low um they're losing population especially when you have people fleeing the country you know by the millions but you got to assume that a fair amount of these guys that are being killed these mobilized guys are only only children you know so you basically you could have families basically dying off you know one after the parents pass they have they have no children to carry on the family because they've been killed i think combat. it would i think it would depend so that's sort of an interesting point i i feel like with the volunteer formation they're actually there's some quite old guys there um because a they're, they're joining voluntarily um and you know it typically older people tend to be more supportive of sort of the current russian system um so then we're more inclined to actually go out of their way to join, you know, the fight in Ukraine, as they would call it. Um, also, young people in Russia tend to be the ones that are more, more likely to serve, you know, under coercion. So, for example, be mobilized. Um, so you, I think you'll actually find that there is a split between the median age of like a volunteer formation presently versus, you know, mobilized elements. Um, and even then with mobilization, it seems to target sort of any age group, really. Um, but I would say, sort of to, to tie back back to, you know, the Russian imperial movement, uh, the pronatalism is actually uh, quite an active part of their sort of ideology of, you know, um, our birth rates are bad and that's a problem and that's down to the lack of traditional lifestyle in Russia. And also, we can't let the central Asians coming in uh, have more, let, let you, we can't let them displace us and this is you know a classic like far-right theory of like great replacement right of where if you let in too many people that aren't natives uh you as a native group are going to get replaced and you know uh, white people are going to become a minority or in this case ethnic russians are going to become a minority um so you know that pronatalist concern 
that you know maybe conventional Russia watchers might be you know reading about uh, definitely resonate within sort of the far right elements as well. They're having those discussions too, and uh, obviously the Russian imperial movement has some probably incorrect but very ideologically motivated answers around why that is. Um, and yeah, that features quite heavily in their rhetoric. Uh, and I also say the same thing about, you know, um, there's a concern increasing that they have about uh, Muslims from, you know, sort of the Dagestan regions having, you know, big families. That's another quote unquote existential threat that they see, you know, towards the ethnic Russian. Um, Interesting. And atalisms, and it's a big part of any far right group, but it seems to be a big part of their sort of ideology. Okay. So I. I first really got uh, turned on to the Imperial movement because I saw a photo going around on Twitter. I think it is, might've been Rob Lee that posted it. And it was a couple dudes from, I want to say the, the 22nd Spetsnaz Brigade posing with a flag, an Imperial movement flag. I didn't know what it was at the time. So I kind of looked it up and that's how I, I came to find out who they were. What, uh, is there any indication as to how much support that the imperial movement has among the armed forces it's a good question and this is an interesting answer like the people repping that flag they weren't necessarily supporters or even people who knew about the russian imperial movement so what i mean so the russian imperial flag sort of like this nostalgia symbol or like a symbol of militarism that's sort of invoked just for the hell of it um and it's and that flag if it's not got like specific writing on it and a specific you know imagery on it but just you know the black um i think it's the black red I'm trying to remember what the russian imperial flag looks like but it's yeah it's white yellow and black right um that flag by itself doesn't necessarily mean that there's any connection with the russian imperial movement uh it's just a use of like the russian imperials you know symbol right um but you know, you will find there are people that will be quite happy to like rock images associated with the Russian imperial movement, um, or just Russian imperialism more broadly. But they won't necessarily have any connection to Russian imperial movement as an organization. Uh, so it, it gets a little bit complicated. Basically, is what I'm trying to say. Um, those twenty seconds back now, guys. I suspect they have nothing to do with the RIM. They were just, okay. you know, being edgy and repping in a Russian imperial flag. And you've seen the inverse of this. You've seen, like, um, Russians with Nova Russia flags. Uh, or you've seen them with Soviet Union flags. Yeah, what, what's that one flag? Uh, I don't I don't think it's the Kievan Rus, but it's it's a red flag, and it has, like, Jesus in up front. What, what flag is that? So uh, it's one of them... It's, it's obviously a Russian Orthodox associated flag. And that's a common one to have a lot of, among a lot of servicemen, especially those that maybe had participation in 2014 sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, I, I forget exactly if there's an organization that particularly belongs to. Uh, I, I know there's a Russian Salvation Front or something like that um, that uses it, but... Yeah, it's like some, you're right, it's like some Russian imperial orthodox sort of it's thing. It's more orthodox than anything. I don't even think it, it, 
you know, reactionary sentiment comes into it, but I don't necessarily think it's an imperial symbol. Okay. Um, but it is a sort of like conservative, like we want the good old days back sort of thing. Got it. So going back to their training real quick, what, um, well, I guess in, in Ukraine as well, what sort of equipment have these guys been observed using? I know you talked about drones. Obviously, they're using rifles and stuff like that, but what else? Uh, they seem to have gotten themselves access to some multiple launch rocket systems. Uh, so some MLRSs. Um, they seem to be trained in using explosives. Um, there's even a few videos of them showing off about how they can make explosives and then demonstrating or like the ruins of some place in Ukraine as to how they can breach a door with an explosive. And um, a lot of it's not necessarily unique, but uh, there there seems to be some access to some like primitive heavy weaponry. Um, I haven't necessarily seen anything to indicate like access to tanks or um, BTRs, but uh, there's definitely been like videos of them using like MLRS systems and stuff like that. So, you know, okay. it, not not an insignificant amount of firepower and definitely something that, you know, if they kept a hold onto it would be a problem, right, for the Russian state or anyone else, really. Yeah, the Carl Wagner mutiny. Yep. Actually, on, on that note, um, just out of curiosity, what, what was their opinion on the, the Wagner mutiny over the summer? Oh, they had a lot of opinions. Um, so the first one was that um, it, it, that this was sort of an inevitable thing. They were quite, you know, they said, we're not fans of Prigozhin. We're not, we're not fans of the MOD. But we know that someone like Prigozhin instilling this much distrust in the Russian states can only be a bad thing. And, you know, they sort of predicted the mutiny in a way. They said, like, it's inevitable there's going to be some attempt at something by the Prigozhin. Um, they sort of viewed both, you know, the state and Wagner as sort of a symptom of Russia's sort of crony oligarchy capitalism. Um, you know, like the sort of impure system where nothing matters except money. Where you know overall ideologically the system is actually very pragmatic, but it pretends to be very conservative. That's another criticism that they have. Um, they also were keen to emphasize they didn't necessarily have a problem with any disaffected Wagner guys. Um, so I think they showed some sympathy to like why they would be upset with the Ministry of Defense, um, but they did call out Prigozhin as sort of an opportunist very early, basically someone who didn't really believe anything they were doing. Or anything that he was saying that sounded right, as in, you know, the Russian state lying to people and stuff like that was sort of just a cynical narrative um, used by him. So um, they mainly viewed it as just something embarrassing. And I didn't really root for any party. They were just sort of just saying, like, this is what happens when you have an impure sort of crony regime with no ideological backbone to it. Um it's funny, like, a lot of people, you know, who, who aren't from that sort of perspective would actually say the same thing. But that's one of the interesting things. They will touch on, like, these very reasonable points. And, like, you know, a lot of groups, they will advocate for some very crazy solutions for uh, what they should be, right? In this case, a return to, like, a Russian empire with strong orthodox roots and, um, you know, that sort of thing. So what... um. 
if it's known at all, what are their sources of income? You know, obviously the the training and stuff like that, it's got to cost money. Everything costs money, right? There's no such thing as a free lunch. No, uh, it's, it, so yeah, the tra the training's there. I guess that's somewhat a self-generating thing that Partisan Center trains people up. Uh, they get money for it. Past that, it's a bit, you know, I, I'm sure the public sort of information to put out is going to suggest that it's actually just, you know, donators and volunteers giving us money and all of that. Um, but where they're getting military equipment from, how they're affording to maintain it, uh, all of these things are sort of raise a massive eyebrow um, around, like, you know, what sort of Russian state involvement there is. And uh, by design, it's meant to look sort of... It's meant to be very, you know, someone can suspect that involvement there, but it's very hard to tie down anything, like, you know, paper-wise. With the exception okay. of, you know, mentioning that they were part of, you know, a coordinated effort by the GRU to create, you know, a volunteer formation pool. Um, past that is very little. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. So let's kind of touch on what their vision is for a new Russian empire. I mean, you know, let's say an empire gets declared today. Um, what, what sort of government is it having? Who's in charge? What does that look like? I, I struggled to think that most of the members have fought that far. See, I, I mentioned Stanislav Vodobiev has like, he has some pretty like quote unquote coherent views around it. Like he's shown interest in getting involved in like domestic politics and galvanizing a movement of nationalists to sort of challenge a Russian state. Uh, and by the way, this is like with a full acknowledgement that like, you know, the, the system sort of rigged for the United Russia Party, right, which Putin represents. Yeah. Um, there's still, you know, an interest to engage in direct democracy, um, to, you know, engage in representative democracy, knowing all its flaws. Um, past that, I mean... The, the ideal, if you want, like a real end game, is they Baltics controlled by a very Russian Orthodox uh, regime, empire preferably of people. Um, so you know, the RM gets democratically elected in this empire, and then they can finally institute, like you know, authentically, you know, uh, Russian Orthodox empire with you know monarchic traits um that controls you know the whole of ukraine the whole of the baltics um maybe has expanded a bit into central asia um where everyone's very traditionally conservative um you know there's no you know white russian ethnic russians are a majority uh all of the other groups you know they are treated as part of like an empire so you know not exactly like 
repressed in any direct way. But the centrality is more sort of towards like ensuring the best lifestyle for like the ethnic Russian, uh, if that makes sense. So like that's one of the things I also wanted to mention. There's no, there are hints of white supremacy when you look at sort of RIM people speak. Um, there's no explicit call for it. Indeed, like you look at a lot of Russian imperialists, they will say like, you know, if if these people are natives of the empire, like we can't mistreat them. You know, we have no right to treat them terribly. Yeah. Um, they're just subjects of the empire. You know, maybe, you know, there's an implicit bias towards ethnic Russians there, but um, there is certainly no explicit call for like Holocaust, you know, like um, concentration camps and race wars and stuff like that. It's not quite to that level. Um, there's definitely a closed off society that maybe would have strongly closed borders. Um, it would be quite keen to ensure that, you know, ethnic Russians continue having big families. Um, and I think the Russian imperial movement would say that a lot of that would come down to having, you know, a Russian Orthodox culture embedded in, you know, education, in politics, you know, the way that the countries ran. Uh, I'm guessing, given that what I believe used to be part of like the all monarchist movement, um, that it would probably be there would be a preference to a monarchy. Uh, but if that's not attained, then maybe just at least an adherence to orthodox values would be maybe something that they would want. Um, but if you're looking at like the Russian Imperial Legion guys, I don't think they've got it fallen out that far. You know, I think there are people that believe you know it's important to pray often. It's important not to drink. It's important not to smoke. It's important to, you know, get married and have a big family. Um, it's important to be guided by religion and family above all else. Um, basically, th these would be like the sort of central thoughts they're having. Past that, I think the more ideological stuff would be led by what Vladimir and like people that are maybe more responsible for cultivating like the intellectual side of the movement. Um, so, you know, I, I did forget to mention that the Russian Imperial Movement has a paper, the Imperial Courier. Uh, it also has a publishing house. Um, so, you know, there would probably be people contributing to works of literature. Or you'd have people, you know, like old men like Vajkov that just like to sound their voice, uh, that want to lecture everyone about how Russia should really be. Um, but, yeah, I, I just wanted to underscore that not... I, the end goal of these movements often doesn't necessarily doesn't a lot of people that join them don't join because they have an end state goal in mind right it's a feeling of like belonging to a group of people that are ideologically similar fighting for a good cause it's not necessarily uh we want to establish an empire i i yearn for the days of monarchy right i don't think there's there's something like that happening on all levels of the organization, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, I mean, obviously, you don't have a an answer, but it, it makes me wonder if if a monarchy, if they did want a monarchy, you know, who would who would take that role? Who would be the czar? I, I have an answer for that. Well, they view the revolution as a tragedy, right? Yeah. So we're talking about, you know, sort of um, post-World War II period. I think it's 1918, if I'm not mistaken. I hope that's right. Uh, yes. Yeah. Basically, when the Russian Revolution happened, um, they viewed, you know, the ousting of the Romanovs as a great tragedy. Um, 
you know, Bolshevism is like a cancer in their own words. It's uh, they actually viewed Karl, Karl Marx as not just, you know, a, a communist with, you know, no commitment to religion, but they also viewed him as Russophobic because his opposition, you know, the fact that his ideology cultivated an opposition to monarchy was for them like a Russophobic thing, you know. It attacked the essence of what being Russian is, right? Um, so they definitely would want to go back to days of monarchy. And I think looking at other reactionary movements that are, you know, in favor of monarchy, it's typically like wanting the Romanovs. It's like a descendant of the Romanov to be in charge. Um, you know, I looked at a BMC of a lot of Cossack roots uh, called Convoy. And yeah, all of their one of its like co-founders is explicit about wanting the Romanovs uh, to be responsible for like a new Russian empire and sort of, you know, to be the monarchs of this empire if it was ever to be formed. Very interesting. Yeah, I like to, uh, I kind of make this argument that a lot of people, when they look at Putin, they think he's like this, he's very ideological ideological right he's he's far right he has all these beliefs that he's like dead set in he's like the worst of the worst you know and then these same people will call for you know like regime change and think like we're going to get something we'll just automatically get something better than putin i mean i kind of make the argument that like if putin's obviously he's not a good dude you know what i mean he's obviously a piece of shit but like as far as uh you know the russian political spectrum goes i mean he's, he's kind of moderate there could be a lot worse than Putin. And that's not to say that um, these elements on the fringe are very popular, right? Like the imperial movement and other monarchists and far right and stuff like that. But I mean, they, they do have a following. They're not super popular like United Russia or whatever, but I mean, they have support. It can definitely be a lot worse if, if Putin were gone. I think the the issue of ever like trying to explore that question is that there is an incentive to convince outsiders that there is nothing but Putin or worse. Um, and I think there is no incentive for the Russian state or even Putin himself to be transparent about how, to what extent he's ideological, to what extent he's pragmatic. So I think anyone that's making too confident judgments on that, I would be, you know, very hesitant towards like taking their judgment too literally. Um, I think like all people, we're often a mix of ideological and pragmatic, right? Some less so, some more so. And I think, you know, Russia wouldn't have gotten where it's gotten with, you know, outlasting Western support so far uh, if it was just, you know, a, a demagogically-led regime. But I also think it would have done a lot better if it was a little bit more pragmatic in some senses, right? So to me, that screams that, like, like a lot of people, there is... Within different elements of the system, there is a general trend towards a mix of pragmatism and ideology. Um, the ideology is, you know, guiding certain assumptions, certain cultural habits within Russian institutions. And maybe the pragmatism being of like ensuring that like we, you know, achieve the mission, right? And you can't necessarily, you know, complete a task if you just approach it in a very rigid way with all of your preconceived sort of biases, right? Um, so yeah, I would say that there's no, actually by design, we, we're not 
supposed to necessarily know what you know putin says like what part of its authentic ideology versus what part of its like some sort of internal internal politics play versus just you know designed to deceive or genuine view right um i think if everyone was so certain of that like there wouldn't need to be a you know a market for russia watches right um because we all just be like, oh, this guy's obviously just an imperialist. Or... But there's there's a debate there for a reason. Um, and, and, I, and I tend to be convinced that it's because, like, uh, there's probably a mix of both the things you mentioned, right? Um, elements of, you know, slightly kooky beliefs versus elements of, like, very steel-hearted pragmatism and ability to sort of negotiate with opposing interest groups, right? Yeah, fair enough, man. That makes sense. Um, I think that's all I got as far as questions go. Do you have uh, anything else you want to touch on or mention? Uh, the only uh, aspect just sort of to round out why I necessarily think that they're worth looking into as a phenomena. Um, so the risk that comes with them and a lot of these far-right movements is once they gain military experience, um, they can transfer knowledge to you know malicious domestic actors and also international actors and as i mentioned you know on the battlefield they're not necessarily making a big difference um but when a few of them come back and they're especially grieved the west um people need to start being quite creative in thinking about what potential threats that poses right um suddenly maybe these people might be more inclined to contact accelerationist terror cells in america or in the uk and um you know give them knowledge that they previously didn't have maybe help them obtain firearms right uh, there's a lot of dangerous things that like a few motivated people can do and i think um looking at all these far-right movements for that purpose is probably quite important and um that goes for like all sides of the conflict you know there are volunteer detachments of very ideologically disturbed people um trying to you know take the opportunity of getting experienced and learning um how to fight effectively right and um in terms of like a counter-terrorism challenge and a law enforcement challenge like for countries globally i can imagine that's going to be a pretty big one um yeah i mean especially you... so... sorry you gone you should definitely not uh, underestimate a group of ideologically driven military age males with combat experience. Yeah. Uh, because again, like you look at the, you know, the, the application is limited, but you look at like counterinsurgency campaigns with like in relation to ISIS, right? ISIS aren't destroyed entirely. Yeah. They're there. And they're slowly picking up steam back then. And when they were weakened, they transition to cell activity rather than doing like divisional, you know, battles against the Syrians or anyone else. Um, and yeah, like terrorist groups will always adjust to what their capabilities are. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, that can still be really, really damaging, you know, assassinations, bombings, that's not nothing. And that's another thing you know, I forgot to mention is that there is a suspicion um, based on reporting that the Russian Imperial Movement were responsible for a string for a series of letter bombings in Europe uh, at like Ukrainian embassies 
Uh, was it was this recently? This was last year, I believe. Um, and like that's not a small threat. Imagine if that's like the Russian state's like go to tool for doing clandestine, you know, um, sabotage operations or assassination operations, right? Using these far right groups uh, to conduct these sort of activities. It, it's a, it's a real threat, right? And people talk about the threat of like nuclear escalation when it comes to Ukraine. I find that to be less interesting and less compelling of a line of argumentation to look through it more than the other sorts of escalation that like the Russian state can engage in. And using these deniable groups to do some quite horrific stuff on hostile country soil is a very real threat, right? Um, and, you know, if they're capable of doing it once, they're capable of doing it again. So that's why it's so important, I think, to look at them, I look at groups like Russian Imperial Movement or Rusich or any anyone else. Yeah, yeah, I agree 100%. Well, man, I think that's, uh, yeah, that's all I got. Okay, everybody, thank you for listening to that episode. We both hope you really enjoyed it. Thank you for supporting this podcast as well. It means a lot to me. You can find this episode on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, we're there. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That's all one word. Please consider supporting us again, Patreon. Ko-Fi or Substack, you can find all those links in the show notes below. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app used to listen to this podcast. That is all I have for you guys right now. See you soon.